I don't know what you think of when you hear the word patterns. Um, as I was growing up, my mom sewed a lot. So when I hear the word pattern, I always think of these patterns. You guys will all know what this is, especially. Um, but you buy these and cut them out and lay them out on the cloth, and you can make a dress or a shirt or whatever by following the pattern as you lay it out. Um, I'm more familiar with another kind of pattern, and that is with woodworking. Um, I'll show you my project. It's called a Civil War officer's chair. And it was quite common for the officers in the Civil War to have these. They fold up totally, and you could pack them along. There's a picture from the Civil War with some of them sitting in them. Well, you can get a plan for this, and with that plan, you can make patterns for all the pieces of the chair. And then the plan helps you fit those all together. And I made these patterns off the drawing so I could cut out my wood to make the chair. Having a pattern of some sort, whether it's a piece of cloth we cut out, or for woodworking, or I'm sure there's other kinds of patterns. Pinterest shows you how to make a scrapbook page. That's a kind of pattern. They all help us understand how it fits together, the pieces you need, the purpose of those pieces, and so you understand what, what, how to make it and what it is. Well, today, I want us to look at the Old Testament because it's a pattern. It's a pattern for what Jesus is going to do in the next two weeks. As we get ready to go, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, believe it or not. Even though we're going to get three inches of snow today and, you know, they say it's spring. And Palm Sunday and Easter are coming, but next Sunday is Palm Sunday and the following is Easter. And obviously some huge events in Jesus' life that affect us happen in the next two weeks. And what I want us to see today is that those events didn't just happen randomly. And they weren't in one sense new, although they'd never happened before. The events that happen in the next two weeks are following a pattern. A pattern that God gave hundreds of years earlier. And I thought it would be helpful for us today, before Palm Sunday, to look at the pattern. And my hope is that as we understand this pattern, in the next two weeks as we think about those events and what Jesus does, you'll have in mind that pattern and say, oh, that's what's going on. That's why. And my hope is it will give us a new appreciation of what Jesus is going to do in the next two weeks and the why behind it. But to understand what Jesus is going to do, in a sense, we have to see the need. I don't know how many of you have seen the, mo the movie um, Apollo 13. But there's a famous line, not just a line in the movie, because it's a line that was truly spoken on the Apollo 13 mission. And the line is, Houston, we have a problem. If you're not familiar with this, Apollo 13 was one of the moon missions. Uh, people had already landed on the moon. It wasn't the mission to land on the moon. The first time, they were getting to go back to the moon again. And in the midst of that flight of Apollo 13, there was a fire and an explosion. 
and what had been a mission to do these wonderful things on the moon suddenly became a mission of can we survive? Houston, we have a problem. We've had an explosion and the moon was forgotten. It was no longer can we get to the moon and walk on it. It was can we even get back to the surface of the earth or are we going to die here in space? And everything changed with that explosion and what was the goal changed with it. In a sense, that happened for us. Humans, men and women, all of us, whatever country we live in, whatever culture. And it happened in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, God has created everything, and, and we're told how he created it and all that he created. And the wonder of this story is that we were at the center of it. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says, all of this, all of this is for you to enjoy. And it was a perfect place. Everything they needed to eat, everything they needed to enjoy life, they had each other. They were set. They were going to the moon, and they were on their way. God gave them a choice. He said, here's everything for you to enjoy. And, and in all of this Garden of Eden, there's two special trees in the center. Not just one, two. And one tree is the tree of life. And the other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for the only first and only time, God says, here's one thing you can't do. Don't eat that one tree. Everything else, yours to enjoy, but the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that. If you do, you'll die. Well, we know the story, probably. They chose poorly. And Adam and Eve said, no, we'd like to take a spin at being God. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And we want to know all that God knows. And, of course, Satan's there and egging them on. And, of course, they eat. And the result is God's warning took place. We die. I die, you die, we all are facing death. That perfect place was marred. And they didn't eat the tree of life where you don't die. And God didn't say, don't eat that one. But they didn't choose that one. They chose the other one. And so now, brokenness is introduced into our world, and we experience it every day. Not just when we go to funerals or we get the news that we have some life-taking disease. We see brokenness every day. In relationships, in dealing with people, in drunk drivers, in, it, it just goes on and on, the brokenness of our world, the news, terrorists. And we say, this world is broken, and God would be the first one to say, I know. If you were God, what would you do? Because, you see, when Adam and Eve did that, God really did have a choice. He could have said, that's it. I'm just going to let them sit there and suffer and watch them. I mean, we're all, we're all big on consequences, aren't we? Let them live with their consequences. 
I warned them, they're going to see what I said. And he could have done that. He could have done what he almost did with Noah. He could have said, you know, we better need, I need a do-over. We're going to do a mulligan. I'm just going to wipe out Adam and Eve, and we're going to start over. Maybe the next couple will do a better job. But he didn't do that. What would you have done? Well, the encouraging thing for us is that God's choice was, I'm going to have to help them. They're not going to do this on their own. And they're not going to figure a way to fix this because they can't. They have messed it up. They've broken it. They've sinned. They have contracted a fatal virus, and it's worse than Ebola because it has a 100% mortality rate. And that fatal virus is sin. God says, I've got to create an antidote. I've got to create a cure. And I think the first time that we really see this cure in all of its power, or we begin to see the pattern starts to be laid out, is in Egypt. Israel is enslaved, and they are the cheap labor for all of the great things of Egypt that we see today. The pyramids, the temples, the sphinx. That was the kind of thing Israel was there to do. And they weren't getting paid, they were slaves. And they were treated terribly, and they were in real trouble. They were facing death. They were dying. God sends Moses, and he sends a series of plagues, and Egypt won't let go of Israel because they need all that slave labor. I mean, the Egyptians said, what do you think? We're going to do this? Are you kidding? We need Israel. And all the plagues go through for Moses and the frogs and the flies and the water turning to blood and all of those, and they still won't let go. And basically God says to Moses, I I knew they'd be stubborn like this. I have one final plague, and then they will let you go. But it's a very dangerous plague. Because I am going to unleash my death angel to move across Egypt. And the firstborn of everyone is going to die. The firstborn of every mother. Slave mother. Pharaoh's mother. The firstborn is going to die. Even the firstborn of the cows. This death angel is not going to play favorites. Everybody's going to, the firstborn is going to die. Death is coming. And everyone's facing death. Every family. But then God says, but I'll give you a way out. So that the death angel won't stop at your home and take your firstborn. And I want you to read that solution because it becomes our pattern. Part of our pattern of what Jesus is going to do. Look over in Exodus 12. And God had told Moses what to do to avoid this fatal virus, this death angel. And Moses goes and shares it with Israel so they all would know it. Exodus 12, starting with verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. 
the death angel will pass over your house. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it into the blood in the basin, this blood of the lamb. And put some of that blood, that lamb's blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame of your entrance door to your house. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. You've got to stay in that house where you'll be safe because of that blood on the doorposts. If you're outside the death angel, then you're, you're, you're free. You're, you're not protected. Free to be killed by the death angel. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of, of your doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And God will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. We begin to see a pattern. A lamb that they picked, a lamb that lived with them for a couple weeks, so it became a pet. So it was a precious lamb, not an unknown lamb that nobody cared about. On the farm, Dad always said, never name the animal. Because when you take Bessie to the butcher, it really hurts. And then you're having hamburgers next week, and it's like, this is Bessie. (laughs) Never name an animal on the farm. God said, I want you to take that lamb in and keep it for a couple weeks so it becomes a pet. Because when that lamb dies, I want you to understand it's a precious lamb. And then you take some of that blood and you take some, think of it as sort of a shock of wheat and you dip it in that blood and then you paint the door frame. And that death angel is going to come through and people are going to die. But you won't. Because a lamb was killed and that lamb's blood protected you. And that's where we get a bread and a cup that we use as a symbol for communion. Because that night, God said, you you have some bread and you have a cup to remember what happened. That pattern continues, and, and that's what happened. And Israel was saved by the blood of the Lamb, but God didn't need to save Israel just one time. And there's more to this pattern thing than just that one Passover night in Egypt. Because the truth is, God had to save Israel again and again. They didn't just sin one time. They kept sinning. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that sinned. All of Israel made choices. All of Israel said, I know what God says, but I want to do what I want. And the nation kept sinning, and they still needed God's help. And God knew that. And he provided another solution, which is also a pattern for us. Now, the interesting thing is I have been taught in seminary is, for us Christians, we focus primarily on the Passover. But if you were a Jew living in the Old Testament, there was a much bigger holiday for you. And it was called the Day of Atonement. Because it was on that day every year that your sins were taken care of. Passover was about great-great-great-great-grandpa who lived in Egypt. And God delivered him. 
The Day of Atonement was every year for my sin. And it also involved a goat and blood. Because sin leads to death and God needed to keep helping Israel. This one's over in Leviticus, if you want to turn with me there. As God lays out for them how they are to have this day of atonement every year. That's where we get a term that we use a lot today. Well, not a lot, but we use. Uh, Leviticus 16, 7. Then the high priest is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, at the entrance to the temple, the tabernacle. He is to cast lots, roll the dice for the two goats, one lot chooses a goat that will be for the Lord, and the other lot chooses the goat that will become the scapegoat. Aaron, who was the high priest then, shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. The goat will be killed, and its blood will pay for sin. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And if you read the whole instructions, the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat and symbolically say, we are putting our sins on this scapegoat. And they would drive him out of the camp as they were trying to remove their sin. And that was after the other goat had been killed to pay for their sin. A pattern of God providing a way to deal with sin so that we don't die. Well, the truth is, you are worth more than a goat. People and animals are not equal. You are much more important than a goat. You are more important to God. You have a higher value. We as humans carry God's image. We have a soul, a spiritual dimension. That's good news. But the bad news is that means our sins have a bigger, are a bigger deal. Our sins have a higher sin value, if I can call it that. So one goat doesn't equal one human sins. Our sins are a bigger deal. And so you might say, well... A goat wouldn't really pay for all my sins. And God would say, you're right, it wouldn't. And so I, I want us to read a verse that in a sense embodies this whole sermon. Turn over to the New Testament to Hebrews 10. And I, I hope this, the, this paragraph will help you put the Old Testament in the context with the New Testament. And what we believe as Christians and how the two fit together. The writer of Hebrews is trying to explain this as he's writing to people who were mostly Jewish but were now Christian. And they were saying, how do I fit the Old Testament with the New Testament? Chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, those goats, Day of Atonement, 
It can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. No, it couldn't do that. Those goats couldn't do that. Verse 3, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the writer of Hebrews is explaining to us that those sacrifices in the Old Testament were really a teaching tool. They were a reminder. They weren't enough to pay for our sins. If they were, we'd run out of goats. We'd just keep buying goats, and it'd be enough. And the writer of Hebrews says, really, in the grand scheme of things, none of us thinks one goat is equal to the sins of our, that we've committed. But they were there as a teaching tool, a shadow of what was to come, a reminder that sin matters. And that when we sin, it does create a barrier between us and God. And just like Adam and Eve, when we sin, that leads us to die. Houston, we have a problem. We're not in a perfect world, and we would mess it up if we were in a perfect world. The cost that needed to be paid for our sins had to be higher than a goat. So is there really a cure? Not just a temporary fix? Well, that would take a huge sacrifice, wouldn't it? Much bigger than a goat. In fact, probably only God could rescue us. And that's what God said he was willing to do. And hundreds of years before Bethlehem, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, God said, here's what I'm going to do for you. It's a passage we read at Christmas all the time. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. And, and what God is promising, he's prophesying through Isaiah he doesn't use the name Jesus. He just says, I'm going to send you, at some point in the future, a deliverer, a savior, a lifeguard, who will jump into the water and rescue you. And he will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace will be put on him. And by his wounds we will be healed. Every one of us, just like silly sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Each of us has sinned. And the Lord has laid on him all our sins. And he will pay for them. In one week, Jesus will enter Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. It looks like a victory parade. And even some of his disciples thought it was. But Jesus knew exactly what it was. He knew that he was entering Jerusalem for the last time. 
and that he was the one prophesied in Isaiah and that he was going to go to die a death for us, for you, for me, to be that lamb slain so that that lamb's blood could be spread on the doorposts of our lives so that when the death angel passes by, the lamb that was slain will save us and we don't die. I hope as the next two weeks unfold, you'll take some extra time to just be thinking about what's happening in Jesus' life. Maybe reading part of that story out of the Gospels. There's daily reading plans that will take you through that in just a week or two. At you version. But be understanding what Jesus is doing for you. And part of the way we understand that is the patterns God gave us in the Old Testament. So we know why he's going to die. And what that blood of his means for us, me, you. That we can avoid death if he's our savior. And that's why we've waited with communion today. That as we take that communion, it will be for us a reminder of a precious lamb's blood that was shed on a cross. So it's available to spread on your life and my life. So even though we've earned it, we don't have to die. He's paid for that. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and then we're going to take that bread and that juice to remember Jesus' sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Old Testament and the Passover lamb and the Day of Atonement that help us understand why a sacrifice had to happen and the power of the blood of a lamb and that you promised you would furnish that lamb for us. And as we walk through the next two weeks and we watch Jesus willingly enter Jerusalem, knowing what's coming. Father, above all else, fill us with how much love Jesus had for us, that he was willing to do that, to die, to be our sacrificial lamb, so his blood could save us. Even as we partake of communion today, and we eat that bread and drink that juice, may they remind us of his body and his blood, freely, willingly given for us. Thank you. In his name, amen.